Hi. All right. We are going to jump back into the text in the book of John. If you have your Bibles, tonight we're going to ask a question, which if you've been in church for any period of time, was a question that I asked myself when I was a kid. You see, if we just kind of take a, a non-biblical, maybe cultural understanding of Jesus, uh, let's, let's talk about that for a second. Raise your hand, don't yell at me. But if, if culture were to talk about Jesus, what do we think about Jesus, right? Uh, the way that he's portrayed, the way that we see him in TV shows, stuff like that. What's Jesus all about? Is he, he a pretty nice guy? Yeah, what? He's a powerful guy. Okay, cool. Yeah, what other? Some dude. Some dude on the cross. Okay. He's a savior. Okay. Loving father. He's handsome. Okay. He's handsome. Uh, yeah. Say it again. Indescribable. But we're going to do it anyway. A friend. A friend to whom? Everyone. Particularly the sinners, right? Yeah. Healer, yep. Lover of all, good, yeah. Ripped, okay, weird. Tall. Teacher, all right, good, that's enough. Listen, I want you to process that with me a little bit. And if kind of our cultural definition of Jesus is a man, a powerful man, loving to all, friend of sinners, kind, healer. We were a little bit off on his looks, but yeah, uh, overall, we, we have this picture in this portrait of Jesus, right? Uh, I remember a few years back, there's clothing company started making clothes that said, Jesus is my homeboy on him. And it was this picture of Jesus and he was kind of like, hey, you know, and like our perceptions of Jesus are, uh, he kind of has, he's like long hair, but he's kind of groovy. He's all about peace and love and all these things. And the, the issue with that is when you, when you get that idea of Jesus in your head, there's a, there's a really intense question you have to ask yourself, which is if this guy came down and he was all of those things, kind, gentle, healer, friend of all, friend of sinners, uh, pleasant, uh, not really there to upset the crowd, you got to ask yourself a question. They voted unanimously to murder this guy. And a lot of the times, because we just have this cultural definition of who Jesus is, and we never really dig into the text about who Jesus actually is, we can kind of get this weird idea in our head that Jesus came down, he did nothing but heal people and cast out demons, and then one day, everyone woke up on the wrong side of the bed, and they were like, we should kill this guy. Let's all vote, right? Everyone voted to kill him. It's like killing Mr. Rogers. We don't even know why we're killing the guy, because he seems pleasant, he seems kind, but we vote. Everyone votes to kill him. Tonight, what we're going to do is we're going to look at what is the truth of Jesus's life and ministry. And at the end of our conversation tonight, just like we have all the rest of the nights, I'm going to leave you with a question, a question that Jesus actually asks his followers that I think he asks all of us also. If you have your Bibles, we're going to start in the book of John chapter four, John chapter four. So to catch up from where we were yesterday, at the end of John chapter one, remember everyone's looking for the savior and they hold up the Bible to see, is this the God we've been waiting for? Is this the Messiah? John the Baptist, buddy the bath giver says, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John the Baptist puts his chips on Jesus. This is the one we've been waiting for. And now as we watch the Bible play out, we watch people start to push their chips in on Jesus too. We all know Messiah is coming, but one by one, people start going, like we saw in the trial this morning, start going, yep, I think this is the guy. John chapter two, Jesus starts his first miracle. He's at a wedding in Cana. They run out of wine and he produces 180 gallons of wine for the party. He does that and we might go, cool, neat trick. Awesome, right? A party ran out of wine. Jesus is like a party starter. He like creates wine, but he actually does this this is important to remember. He does this in specific fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Here's what this means. It means thousands of years before Jesus showed up, the Jews in captivity, the Israelites in captivity, kept getting taken into slavery by Egyptians and by the Babylonians and by the Assyrians and by every people group kept coming and taking over Israel. And the Israelites knew that one day, 
the promise from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15 and 16, was that God was going to send a deliverer. Your whole Bible exists for one purpose. The whole Old Testament exists for one purpose. The first 39 books of your Bible are not about you being a good person or the Ten Commandments. Or, it's not about any of that. Your whole Old Testament is one big pointer finger towards Jesus. Every, from the first page of Genesis to the last page of Malachi, it all points Jesus is on his way. So the Israelites are waiting and they're waiting desperately. They're sick of getting taken over and they have all these expectations about what Jesus is going to do. So they would use this phrase over and over again in their homes. And how we would say in English is, well, when Messiah comes, and all their hope rested on this idea that when Messiah comes, and then fill in the blank, when Messiah comes, we're gonna be freed. When Messiah comes, he's gonna overthrow Rome. When Messiah comes, and what they said after when Messiah comes was all the Old Testament prophecies about what they were expecting, they would say. So in Hebrew, they would say, right? It's kind of a cool phrase to say, when Messiah comes, right? And so mothers and fathers would put their kids to bed and, and stroke their fingers through their hair and tell them stories of what it's gonna be like when Messiah comes. And they would go to bed even in captivity, even under Babylonian oppression, even under Assyrian rule, even under the 400 periods of silence between the Old and the New Testament, and even under the great oppressor Rome. The Jews sit in patient but excited expectation that when Messiah comes, he is going to do all the things that the Old Testament says. Isaiah 61, when Messiah comes, he is going to be, he'll be filled with the spirit, he'll pronounce freedom for the captive, he will be a father to the fatherless, he will be freedom for the enslaved when Messiah comes. And the Old Testament has all these little Easter eggs where it says, Here's how you'll know the Messiah is here. You want to know one of those Easter eggs? In the book of Amos and the book of Zephaniah, it says, when Messiah comes, the wine will flow from the mountaintops. When Messiah comes, he will turn their weeping to rejoicing. When Messiah comes, he will turn their shame into honor. So we hear the story of Jesus turning water into wine and we think, neat trick, right? It's like a party trick. But he's doing something very specific to a group of people who are expecting that when Messiah comes, he will bring abundantly all good things, as the book of Amos says in Zephaniah 3.19. The hills will flow with wine when Messiah comes. So what's Jesus saying? It's me. Everything Jesus does, he's pointing at himself and going, don't miss this. It's me. I'm the one you've been expecting I'm the one you've been waiting for, which leads us then to John chapter three, which contains perhaps the most famous verse in the whole Bible. There's a man named Nicodemus. He's part of the Jewish ruling council, and he's kind of freaked out by this Jesus character. And the people in the Sanhedrin used to study at night. So we see Nick under the cloak of darkness walking over to Jesus. I call this story Nick at night. Nicodemus goes and approaches Jesus under the cloak of darkness, and he says, hey, my friends in the Sanhedrin, we don't know about you, right? Uh, fluffy P. Higglesbottom doesn't know about you, but I'm curious. And so he walks up to Jesus and he says, I don't want anyone to let him hear because I could be ridiculed for just talking to you. But explain to me, what must a man do to be saved? And Jesus says, easy, you must be born again. To which Nicodemus says, born again? I wouldn't even fit into my mother's womb. How could I be born again? Jesus says, wait a minute, you're the teacher of Israel and you think that I'm telling you you have to walk, you have to go back inside your mother's womb? No, friend. It means that you were once born of flesh, but you need to be reborn of spirit, a new self, a new identity. First Corinthians chapter 16, or First Corinthians chapter 6, uh, First Corinthians chapter 15. The old has gone, the new has come. You need a new identity in Christ. John chapter four, that's where we're gonna pick up in this story. Jesus is slowly starting to take all the expectations of who we thought HaMashiach HaTabo, and as he walks through Galilee and as he walks through Judea, everyone with bated breath goes, this guy's done some pretty cool stuff. He, is, he has brought water, he's brought wine from water, he has been the teacher of Nicodemus, he has done all these neat miracles, and so they go, oh, now we get to watch. What's he gonna do next? What's he gonna say next? And here's what you're gonna find. 
If you were questioning, why did they put this guy to death? I'm hoping by the end of tonight's conversation, that will not be a conversation for you anymore. By the end of tonight's conversation, when we read the text for itself, not the coloring book pages you've colored when you were in Sunday school, not the culturally accepted definition of who Jesus is, when you read the text, here's what you'll find. A remarkably truth-filled, incredibly offensive, culture-changing, tradition-disrespecting God of the universe in human form. He doesn't care about the traditions of man, especially when they separate his people from him. Here's the text. John chapter four. Again, I want you to do your best to not read this through modern eyes. Try to read this through the eyes of a first century Jewish person, okay? And I'll tell you how we're gonna do that here in a second. Uh, verse four, chapter four, verse four. So that means in your Bible, you should, the book of John should be at the top of your page. You should be a big number four and then a tiny number four. That's what we're gonna be reading. You can read along with me. Your Bible might not be the NIV. That's what I'm reading out of, but it'll be similar, okay? So try to follow along if you can. If you're new to the Bible, this is kind of how we, how we do it when we read. Here's what it says. Now, verse four, he had to go through Samaria. Let me ask you a question. Is Jesus... Are Jesus and God the same? Is he one with God? Yes, yes we saw that in, in the skit this morning, right? The play, sorry, the performance piece. In the performance piece this morning, we saw Theo at the end saying, oh, you don't get it. I'm not just from the master. I am one with the master. This was blasphemy. Blasphemy means to call yourself God even though you're a man. This is what they try him for. Blasphemer, you call yourself God. Jesus did not say, I'm like God, or I simply came from God, or as some religious belief systems teach, like Jehovah's Witnesses, that he is simply a son of God, or a special son of God, or an archangel Michael. Jesus says, no, 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 no. I am God. The Father and I are one. So, isn't it ironic that we start chapter four, verse four, with this weird sentence? What does your Bible say? Chapter four, verse four. Read it out loud. Now he had to go through Samaria. Ask yourself a question. If you're the God of the universe, what does it mean you had to go somewhere, right? You kind of invented the universe. You put the stars in place. You made microparticles. You made plankton and blue whales. And you can do whatever you want to do. And yet the Bible says he had to go through Samaria. This is a special instance in scripture that we, that we look at. It's called the divine imperative. It meant that the father in heaven looked down at something that needed to be accomplished and sent Jesus on a task. The book of John chapter two said that Jesus had this Holy Spirit inside of him without limits. So he always knew what the father wanted him to do. So he felt in his spirit that he had to go through Samaria. Why? Because his father told him to. The divine imperative. Jesus, he had a date he had a plan set. There was a scheme in place that the Father wanted to fulfill. And we as the readers get to figure out what it is. And if you're a first century Jewish audience and you're part of the religious elite and you're Fluffy P. Higgles bottom and you hear the phrase, he had to go through Samaria, you would have lost your mind. Because Samaria, the Jews in particular, believe that the Samaritans were kind of like mudbloods, okay? If you're into like the wizarding world, okay? Mudbloods. Here's what that means. This is important to understand. Samaritans were a cross between pure blood Jews and their pagan captors. So when Babylonia came in and their other captors came in, they decimated Jerusalem, boom! And then they took all their best people and made them slaves. There was a group of people that didn't cut it to even be a Babylonian slave. They were like, you're not good enough. You're not good looking enough. You're not powerful enough. You're not strong enough. Or maybe you have some kind of a disability or you can't see or, or you're, you're just, you're a punk. And they left all those people in Jerusalem with no walls, with no protection and with no army. So what did the surrounding nations do? The surrounding nations walked in. They're like, so y'all don't have a wall? So y'all don't have an army? And they walked in and they plundered and they pillaged and they took whatever they want. And a lot of the women who were left behind in Jerusalem who knew 
that the Jewish pride was in their pure blood decided, well, to pr protect ourselves and, and, and to make sure we survive, we're going to start intermarrying. We're going to start marrying these pagan nations that are coming into Jerusalem. Their offspring between a formerly pure blood Jewish line and their pagan captors, their offspring were called Samaritans. So if you were a Jew and you were all about preserving the Jewish lineage, you hated Samaritans. I mean, hated. There's one, there's one, uh, there, there's one passage in, the, in an old text that talks about what rabbis are to do. Very old text. It's not biblical. It was just a traditional text. And it says, the best kind of Samaritan is a dead Samaritan. You could, you had the right as a Jew to spit on Samaritans, to take what you wanted from Samaritans, and if the mood struck right and it was appropriate, you could kill a Samaritan and not even be charged for it. Jews hated Samaritans. You didn't talk to them. You didn't touch them. You didn't go to Samaria. You didn't go through Samaria. You certainly did not waste your time having a conversation with a Samaritan. And we see Jesus, and what does it say? He did what? He had to go through Samaria. You guys have to understand how remarkably offensive this idea was to the Jewish audience who's hearing the story of Jesus for the first time in the book of John. They're going, are you telling me that the great Jewish rabbi, the king himself, the God of the universe, went to Samaria? And to which John says, bro, I'm just getting started. Now, he had to go through Samaria, so he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar near the plot of ground Jacob had given his son Joseph. You can go here today. This is an archaeological site. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon, okay? So Mittens the cat this morning is a Samaritan woman in the text. Do dogs like cats? No. Do Jews like Samaritans? No. Mittens the cat, Samaritan woman. Jesus comes up and he sees this Samaritan woman and she's drawing water, which in this culture was the woman's job, but they would typically have done it at dusk or dawn. It's not too hot, not too cold, still light out so that no one can rob you, but it's not uh, in the middle of the day where it's hot, okay? This is the same Jerusalem is on the same level of latitude as Bakersfield, California, okay? So it's hot. This is like Fresno, right? Middle of summer, noon, how are we feeling? Uncomfortable, right? It's hot, 110, 105 degrees, whatever it is. So you, this is not when you would want to go get water. But this woman, for whatever reason, which we'll find out in a second, feels like she has to go in the middle of the day. She's been ostracized from her community. She's dejected. She's rejected. So in, you have to think in their culture. In their culture, if you had the choice between, as far as honor goes, being a Jew or a Samaritan, what would you choose? Jew. Jew was much more honorable. If you had the choice in their culture between being a man and a woman, which would you rather have been in their culture? Man. Man had more rights, had more responsibilities, had much more honor than women did. It's not right. It's wrong, but this is the culture that Jesus was born into. Jesus, we're going to watch him totally upset the apple cart on this whole gender conversation here in a second. But this is the culture that we find ourselves in, in the text. So it would be better to be a Jew. It would be better to be a man. And it would be better to be of a religious household than it would to be rejected. Not only that, if you had the choice between being part of the in crowd that goes and draws water at the right parts of day and being part of the dejected out crowd, we would all choose the in crowd. So the, 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 the gospel of John, Buddy, in the story, Buddy sets up this phenomenal dichotomy, this phenomenal juxtaposition. I'm trying to think of a smaller word. A phenomenal uh, showdown between, in their culture, the best of the best. A Jewish rabbi part of the high ruling council, Jesus. He's got his robes on. He is from Jerusalem. He's perfect. He's obedient. Everything about him is honorable. And you have a Samaritan woman, the lowest of the low, dejected, rejected, displaced, marginalized, ostracized, all on her own. And we, we watch them meet up. And if you were used to hearing the stories about how Mashiach and what Messiah was gonna do, we might think, when Messiah comes, 
He's going to get rid of all those Samaritans, those mudbloods. They're filthy. They're gross. They're wrong. And when, and when Messiah comes, he'll get rid of all of them. <laughs> Here's what happens. Verse 7 in your Bibles. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. So, right here, what is the Bible making sure we understand? They are alone. You guys, it could not get more scandalous. Besides that, if you were a bachelor in this day and age, <coughs> and it was the woman's job to draw water, and you were looking for a girlfriend or you were looking for a wife, it was very common that the place that you would go to find a bride or to get your flirt on is that men would go and hang out where? At the well. Because that's where the women were going to be, right? Where's that guy that was up on the um, blob today with his little... Oh, absolutely. Oh, he is? All I'm saying is at any point in the sermon, if I offend you, I apologize so profusely, okay? I mean you no offense, Right? So, and my man, so we, they would stand by the well and they would put out the vibes, right? Just, hey, how's it going? Have you guys seen which way is the bath? You know, like, I don't know. You know, like, when I, it's not impressive when I do. When he did it, you're, everyone's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> Your biceps are poking me in the eye. Um, so this is what men would do. So not only that, we have this scene set up that in a Jewish mindset almost had this undertones of, of a romance. This, this, it's undertones of kind of this meetup. And in the middle of it, we find out that they're alone. It's a scandal to the highest degree. But it gets worse. Here we go. Jesus said to her, will you get me a drink? Verse 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. You see how shocked she is? She's so shocked, she just repeats exactly what's happening, right? Like if your friend ever drop kicks you and you're on the ground and someone goes, what happened? What do you say? He just drop kicked me. That's all you can say. All, in shocking moments, we just repeat exactly what happened, right? Like I fell over, right? Like I got blobbed 30 feet in the air. We just repeat the obvious things, okay? <coughs> so she's stunned. Lean in, lean in, lean in. Here we go. How can you ask me for a drink? And here's what it says. For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. The Bible's telling us this is shocking, okay? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Living water. So Jesus says, lady, you've missed an opportunity because if you knew who I was, you would have stopped me mid-sentence and you would have said, sir, 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 good teacher, rabbi, master, Lord, God of the universe, I don't, I'm not here to give you a drink. I need you to give me a drink. So Jesus throws out nonchalantly just this, uh, into the ether, he, he throws out this idea. If you knew who I was, you would have asked me for a drink. So the woman now is curious. You're a Jew, you're talking to me, and you're talking to me in really weird language. If I knew who you were, I would have asked you for a drink. What is that supposed to mean? <coughs> here's, the, here's the response. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Okay, did you love this? Jesus says this really intense spiritual thing. If you would have asked me for water, I would have given you maim haim in the Hebrew, living water. He promises that if you would have asked me for a drink, Jesus says, I would have given you water that is fresh like spring water that wells up and continues to purify itself all the time. Maim haim, that's the idea of living water in their, in their culture. And then the woman's response is this. Well, I don't see a bucket, right? So Jesus is trying to take conversation from water to spiritual things and she keeps bringing it back down to the material. But where's your bucket? If you're going to draw living water, man, where's your bucket? And Jesus is almost like, lady, <laughs> lady, I'm not talking about H2O. I'm talking about something deeper, something more meaningful, okay? Jesus, I love his patience here. 
And you don't have a bucket. Where can we get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us this well and drank for himself as did his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, guys, this is so good. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water, he points to the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So Jesus, he says something that's potentially offensive. Once again, he's, he's talking about something bigger than the water in front of them. Jesus asks her a simple question. He asks her in not so many words, if I'm able to paraphrase, lady, is it working for you? Lady, is this working? Lady, every day I, I know, I know, right? Here's, you have to understand this. Has Jesus ever met this woman before? So does Jesus know who this woman is? Yes, he does. What does the book of John chapter one, verse one says? It says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing is made that has been made. So Jesus, the book of Psalm 139 tells us explicitly, he meticulously crafts all of us. John chapter two, Jesus, it says that Jesus has the spirit of God without limits. In scripture, he knows what people are thinking. He knows where they've come from. He knows their ins and outs. He knows every hair on their head, which means when you go to chapel or you go to church and you put on this facade, this great big representative idea of who you are, <coughs> and you go, look at me, God, I'm good. Look at me, God, I say good things. Here's what you have to understand. Jesus, uh, here's what you imagine. Imagine someone was able to take a video of every conscious thought that you had during a day. Every weird thought that you had, every offensive thought that you had, every rude thing, that, every idea that you had, every gross, everything that you've ever done, someone was able to take your thought life, put it into a movie, and then we all sat in Meadow Ranch, and we just said your name on the screen, and we're like, here's what they thought today. And it just starts playing. There would be... <laughs> I would venture to say that if that were to happen, I would venture to say that if that were to happen, like if I saw that on the screen and it said, here's what Chris Hilkin has thought today, I, you would never see me again. I would run and I would never stop running. I would go to Mexico, I would change my name and you would never see me again. And maybe if you went down and came to my new scuba diving shop down in Cancun, and you recognize me, I might tell you the truth, but probably not. I would never come back. <coughs> and that's one day. It's not the worst thoughts I've had in my life, just the worst thoughts I've had today. So, I ask you a question. Does Jesus know this woman? Yes. He knows everything about this woman. So, to the woman, Jesus is a stranger. To Jesus, this woman is his daughter. He knows everything about her. So he asks his beloved, he asks this woman who he himself has knit together, he asks this woman, he knows her history, he knows her present, he knows everything about her, and he says, woman, which was a very intentional uh, relational term of endearment back then. So when Jesus calls her woman, it was, it, was, it was like saying, sweetie, right? It's like going down to the south and some, you're ordering pancakes and your waitress says, honey, right? It's a beautiful term of endearment. Jesus says, woman, and then he asks her this question and he says, are you tired of drawing from the same well every day and expecting a different result? He's, it's like he's saying, listen, my beloved, is there something in your life that you've convinced yourself, if you get enough of it, it's gonna satisfy you. It's like a thirst that you have. It's, it's like a desire that you have. It's like an idol that you have. It's like a God that you serve. 
and you've told yourself, if I just get enough of this, if I just succeed enough in this, if I just get enough followers, if I just get enough people to like me, if, if I just do the, the next dumb thing so everyone laughs at me, and, and if, I can just, if, if I can just be known by enough, if I can get good enough grades, if I, can, if I can make that team, if I can do this, if I can just do this one thing, if I can accomplish this one thing, then I'm gonna be satisfied. Jesus walks into the middle of her brokenness and we all have that thing in our life that we've told ourselves, if I keep this up and if I do enough good things and if I accomplish enough things, then I'm gonna be satisfied, then I'm gonna be whole, then I'm gonna be complete. Let me tell you a secret that the most famous and rich people on planet earth understand that you might never understand. Nothing could possibly satisfy your soul except Jesus. You can't make enough money. You can't have enough friends. You can't have enough followers. Do you know that there's a proportional, distinct correlation between the amount of followers you have and the propensity for mental health in America? That means we all want more, more people follow me, more people watch my videos, more people, more people. In fact, what you'll find is the people on the upper echelon of YouTube, on the upper echelon of all these platforms, struggle with mental health issues, with, with insecurity, with inferiority complexes, with panic attacks and anxiety, more than people who have like 30 or 40 followers. Do you wanna know why? Because they've told themselves, if I just keep drawing from this well, I'll be satisfied. And what happened? They've got one, two, three, 40, 50, 60, 70 million followers, and are they satisfied? No. And now they're freaking out, because they're going, well, this was my game plan. My game plan was to climb to the top of this mountain and now I'm here. I don't have anywhere else to climb and I still feel empty. So Jesus walks into her nonsense, into the middle of her brokenness, in the middle of her idolatry, in the middle of what she's chasing, in the middle of her mountain climb, and he asks her simply, is this working for you? Like you keep coming back every day to draw water and then every day you're thirsty again, so you keep coming back and drawing water. Do you think Jesus right now is actually talking about water? No! He's talking about whatever it is in her life that she keeps telling herself will satisfy her, but never will. Maybe you're asking the question now, well, this isn't that offensive. Friends, buckle your seatbelts. You're about to experience Jesus at the peak of his offense. You ready? Here we go. Verse 15. He says, I could give you water that's going to well up in you to eternal life. Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. Is this working for you, lady? Aren't you sick of coming back and drawing from the same well? Aren't you sick of the lie that this is going to somehow satisfy you? Aren't you over it? Or are you going to keep doing this for the rest of your life? She says, verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, I'll take some, right? Give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and having to keep coming back here to draw water. So she goes, okay, I'll play your little game. What will it take? Oh, man. Jesus responds to her, go, call your husband and come back. Okay, so is it imperative that her husband is there in order to have a conversation? No, right? He's already been talking to her. He's upset all cultural norms. There's nothing necessary about bringing your husband back. But instead, in the same line of thinking, do you want to keep drawing from the well or keep coming back? He says, now I want you to go get your husband. Now this woman... I'm going to guess she breathes a sigh of relief. She's like, whoo, this guy was freaking me out, man. He was talking about this living water stuff. He was saying, keep coming back this well and drawing. But man, I thought for a minute he was like powerful, maybe a prophet. Maybe he could like see the future. Maybe he understood things that I didn't. But nope, because if this guy knew me, he would know I don't even have a husband. So she's like, she thinks she's just gotten away with one. She's like, this guy was talking all high and mighty, all this religious jargon, how he could give me living water. I would never thirst again. But this guy biffed it, man. He's not a real prophet. Because if he was a real prophet, he would know I'm not even married. I have no husband, she replied. Oh my gosh. Verse 17, Jesus said, oh yeah. You are right when you say you've had, you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and now you live with a man who is not your husband. So I guess what you said is quite true. Sus. 
Sus. Sus. Straight up sus. Straight up sus. Look, y'all, if y'all walked in to this chapel tonight asking yourself, why would they crucify such a nice guy? You may have read that text where Jesus goes, oh, yeah, no, that, that's true. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands, and now you live with a man, and you're not even married to him because you're sick of going back to the same well and drawing from it, so you're not even getting married anymore. So I guess what you're saying is quite true. Hey! <laughs> the woman goes from thinking, I, I tricked him, right? This guy's not a prophet. He doesn't know anything. He says that sentence, and then after peeing her pants, she looks back at him, and she says this. Here's what she responds. <coughs> Verse 19. Sir, the woman said, I can see now that you are a prophet. <laughs> so, in not so many words, what is she saying? Okay, okay, fair enough, fair enough. Here's what it says. Don't you love, here's what she turns to, though. Jesus comes and breaks all expectation. He totally overthrows who everyone thought he was going to be as Messiah. He, in this story, he's already ticked off the Jews. He's ticked off the Sanhedrin. He's ticked off the Pharisees. Now he walks into Samaria with the mudbloods, and now he's ticked off the mudbloods. And they're all going, what the heck? But then, what's her response? I love this response from her because it's what we do all the time. Jesus wants to have a real conversation with us. He says, lady, look, you, you've got this facade, right? I'm, I'm not, now, I'm not talking about the lady. I'm talking about you, okay? Because I remember what it was like to be 12 years old and be at church camp, okay? The reason that so many of us find Jesus disinteresting the reason why so many of us have a difficult time having a relationship with God is not because he isn't real. It's because we're not real. It's not that God's fake. It's that we're fake. It's that we walk into church and here's what we think to ourselves. As long as I project this certain image, as long as I talk biblical talk, as long as I say words like brother, sister, crucifixion, salvation, justification, as long as I use these big flowery words, and as long as I keep God at arm's length, I don't have to talk about the real mess in my life. As long as I keep God at arm's length, I don't have to have him come and look at my soul and permeate my heart and make big changes. So we keep God at an arm's length. We do what this woman does. What is, what's her response? Here's what she says. After being called out, on the, most, on the most humiliating, shameful part of her life. Why does Jesus do this? To embarrass her? No. He calls this out because she is incapable and unwilling to have a conversation about what is in her life that hurts her the most. And here's what I love about Jesus. He doesn't let her get away with it. Do you want to know why? He doesn't let her get away with it because he is disinterested in having a relationship with some false version of ourselves that we pitch forward at church. The God of the universe didn't come and die on a cross so that we would all create a cardboard cutout version of ourselves that we put in church and go, look, this guy's happy. Look, this guy worships. Look, this guy reads the Bible. Look, this guy's got friends. Look, this. Jesus comes in and he tears that cardboard cutout apart and he looks at you and he looks at me and he says, I want you to know that I know you. I want you to know that I know the part of you that you don't want anyone else to know. I want you to know that I see the sin in you that nobody else sees. I want you to know that I know the deepest part of your shame. I want you to know that the confusion that you have, the doubts and, and the concerns that you have, I know them. And I want you to know that I'm big enough to talk about these things, to answer them, and I'm big enough to free you from the shame that you live in. But a lot of us, instead of the freedom that Jesus gives, instead of, right, here's the question that Jesus answers all, asks all of us. Are you tired of going back and drawing from the same well over and over again? This is what he asks all of us. 
there's something in your life that you've told yourself, if you get enough, or if you do enough, if you have enough, you'll be satisfied. You're finding something out, even at your age. Here's what you're finding out. It's never, ever gonna work. And Jesus, in his divine mercy, calls each and every one of us tonight, and he looks into the deepest part of our soul, and he says, go get your husband. And you're right. You don't have a husband, right? Most of us in here don't have a husband. But what's Jesus saying on a deeper level? He's saying to us this. Shh, here's what he's saying. He's saying, junior higher, you have spent way too long being fake with me. Junior higher, you've spent way too long being fake with the friends around you. You've spent way too long projecting this cardboard cutout image of yourself. And Jesus, in his mercy, is calling to each of us tonight and saying, I want you to bring before me the thing that you don't want to talk about. Jesus, in his divine mercy, is saying, I'm ready to talk about the thing that you don't want to talk about with me. There's a pain in your life. There's a confusion in your heart. There's a doubt in your soul. There's a, there's a suffering in your existence. There's a confusion about how you were made and why you were made. There's, there's, a, there's a disillusionment in who we are. We're mad about something. We're confused about something. We're feeling shame about something. There's a sin that we've committed that we don't want anyone else to know about. And Jesus tonight is going, go get that and let's have a conversation. And the woman's response is more religion. She's so used to projecting this image of who she is. After Jesus says, you've had five husbands, you're living with a man who's not your husband, here's her response. She says, well, I've got a question about um, worship spaces because the Jews think we should worship over in Jerusalem, but we think it's in, it's in Tel Dan, and so I'm not quite sure which one, if you're a prophet, can you help answer this question for me? And Jesus cuts through the, like a hot knife. He says, I, I don't want to do this. I don't want to have a conversation about this place or that place or uh, I don't want, I don't, I don't, th th those prayers are disinteresting to the God of the universe when he already knows your soul. He says, woman, I want to talk about the thing that you don't want to talk about. And for a lot of us, when we pray to God, no matter what is in the deepest, darkest, most painful, broken, shameful part of our hearts, we pray like this. Hey God, um, I got a math test coming up. Help me with that. And um, help me not get sick. Um, please bless this day. Please bless this food to strengthen our bodies. Great. Great. That's a great prayer. That's a great prayer. But for 99% of us in here, that's not really the thing that we want to talk to God about. We've pushed that so deep down that we've thought that God doesn't want to deal with that mess. God doesn't want to deal with that part of me that I don't want to show. He's just interested in making my math score improve and this food to strengthen my bodies and somehow that I'm going to drink this monster energy drink and it's going to give me some kind of nutritional value. Like that, that's not the way that it works. And are those prayers good? Does God invite us to pray anything that we have in our life? Yes, but he also invites us to share with them the part of ourselves that we don't want anyone else to know about. See, in John chapter five, he then heals this Roman official's son, the Rottweiler in the, in the play. And this guy, he's at the end of his rope and he comes and he asks Jesus for a miracle and Jesus gives it to him. And then in John chapter six, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. And that's not just some random miracle. See, the Jews of that day and age, they thought that Moses, this Old Testament prophet, was like the best. He could do things that no one else could do. And Jesus walks into their society once again, and he says, y'all like Moses? You do? Y'all think he's the best? You do? How did he provide for people in the wilderness? Oh, he, they picked up pieces of bread off the ground and gave it to people. Jesus says, oh, that's impressive. Then he grabs a kid's lunchbox and he says a prayer, and he feeds 5,000 people out of the palm of his hands. What's he doing? He's saying, every institution that you've set up, every expectation that you had about me, every idea you had about what God was going to do, I am here to overturn it and then ask you one question. If I don't live up to who you thought I was going to be, am I still God of your life? 
if I don't come into your life and do what you expected me to do, if I've got a different will for your life or a different idea for your life, what if I call you to change the way that you are, to change your future, to change your life, to change your expectations? What if I called you to change all that stuff? So many of us, when it comes to Jesus, here's how it works. Can I have my paper here, my man? Thank you so much. Appreciate that. Here is what I'm going to end with. A lot of us, like a blank piece of paper, sit before Jesus, maybe the first time we were ever introduced to who God is. We take a blank sheet of paper and we start to fill it out. And it's our contract with God. And at the bottom, right, is our signature line right there. See that? But before we want to sign we ask God pretty simply, what's my life going to look like? And instead of him answering, we start to give him expectations. We start to give him our stipulations, right? It's a contract, right? So I'm going to tell you what I want, and if everything goes according to plan, then I'm going to sign my name at the bottom, and I'll follow you. Then you'll be my God, and I will, I will be your child, and we'll do this whole thing forever. It'll be great. So we start filling it out, okay? Um, I would say the younger that we are, the, the bigger our expectations of God get, you know? Maybe a little bit, they're not very innocent, they're pretty selfish, right? Like, God's gonna give me, I don't know, some sweet car, right? Like, I'm gonna drive a Tesla, you know? Yeah, okay. Um, so here, God, God, you're the God of the universe, and I wanna follow you. But you gotta meet me halfway, man. So I will follow you if and only if these are the things that you're going to do for me. And I don't think it's unreasonable to think that I'm going to grow up and I'm going to have kids. I'm not going to struggle with any type of infertility. I'm not going to have any miscarriages. I'm going to have a great marriage. My marriage is going to last a long time. I'm going to live until I'm 85 years old. My spouse is going to live until she's 90 years old. And if you want to be good, and if you want to be my God, I mean, it's simple. Just do what I ask. <clears throat> and my kids are going to be well protected. I'm going to get a good job. And I get that bad things are going to happen to me, but they're going to happen to me proportionally to how bad of a person that I am. So I get that if I do bad stuff, bad things are going to happen. But if I'm doing good stuff, like, <clears throat> I should get good stuff. And then even though you've probably never done this, almost all of us internally have done this. And we've said, this looks pretty good. And then we take it, and we sit in front of God, and we slide this across the desk, and we go, are you interested? It's, it would be funnier if it weren't true for a lot of us, right? We slide it back across the table, and then here's what happens in our life. What happened in the story of John chapter 2? He turns water into wine. He broke the expectation of what Messiah was going to do. In John chapter 3, Nick at night, you got to be born again. Breaks the expectation of the Jewish rulers. John chapter 4, Samaritan woman, in the middle of the desert, in the hot part of the day, now even the cultural Jews are mad at the guy. He has broken expectation once again. John chapter 5, he heals someone. Who does he heal? The oppressor's son, the Roman official. He keeps setting up expectations, drop kicking them, and then saying, what happens when I go like this? What happens, what if your spouse lived to be 28? Am I still God? Am I still good? Well protected. Well, that one's off the table. Proportional to good things. It's... And at some point, for most of us, it just becomes not worth it. Our transaction with God just doesn't pan out. And so we look at that line on the bottom, signing our life over to him, and we go, bro, for what? 
the almighty God of the universe. The Old Testament says you've got cattle on a thousand hill. You are the great physician and you don't even fix the stuff that I want you to fix. You don't give me the things that I want. It says in the New Testament, if any man, when his, when his son asked for bread, who would give him a snake? That says, feels like you've done with my life. I've asked you for simple things. I've asked you for obvious things. And when Jesus enters my life, he's gonna give me these things. And he does it over and over and over again. And so a lot of us go, done. When I say a lot of us, I mean the Bible says, the road that leads to destruction is wide and many are those who travel it. And the road that leads to eternal life is narrow and few are those who tread that one. Do you wanna know why? In the next chapter of John chapter six, Jesus stands in front of a whole bunch of people. He started to gather a following. He fed 5,000 people. He walks on water. And then he walks in front of all those people and he teaches something new to them. He teaches something offensive to them. He teaches them something new. And he says, y'all have been following me for a long time because you like to see my miracles. John chapter six. And then he says this, but if you want any part of me, you have to want me, you have to desire me, and you have to literally with your soul, I must be as your only thirst. I am the bread of life. I am what helps you survive. Without me, you are nothing. If you want to follow me, you must have a deep passion and desire for me. That it's almost like if I weren't there, you would die. I am the satisfaction for your soul. I am the living water of your heart. I am the king that sits on the throne of your life. Here's how he puts it in the book of John. If you don't eat my body and drink my blood, you have no part with me. If I am not your thirst and I am not the, the, the quenching of your hunger, if I am not your everything, I will be your nothing. And if you are not prepared to eat my body and drink my blood, the Bible says, then you have no part with me. You know what the next section says? Almost everyone in the audience, even though they'd seen the miracles, even though they were fed out of the palm of his hand, even though they knew about him walking on water, even though they saw him raise a dead official son to life, it says almost all the people abandon him and walk away. Do you want to know why? Because the contract that they had written about what Jesus was going to do in their life didn't pan out. Oh, is he going to feed me? Oh, for sure. Is he going to show me miracles? Oh, for sure. Oh, is he going to do this for me? Oh, for sure. And then he says, and now I'm going to break your expectation. You must eat my body and drink my blood. I must be your everything or I will be your nothing. And they go, whoa, nope. Out, I'm out. I don't want any part with you. Jesus then looks at his disciples and here's the question I'm gonna leave you with. He looks at his disciples and he says, have I offended you? And the disciples' response, yes. Of course you have. Because you're a different God than we thought you were gonna be. Your presence in my life has meant something than I thought it was. I thought that when you came into my life, everything would be easy and, and simple and neat and not confusing. And, and I would get what I wanted and I would, be, I would refrain from anything that was painful. And then if your life is anything like mine, you sit there and go, then what are you doing? And Jesus looks at Simon Peter and he says, if I've offended you so deeply and if I'm not who you thought I was, what are you gonna do with that truth? He says, are you going to abandon me too? John chapter 6, verse 65, 66, and 67. Simon Peter responds and he says, I love this phrase. I literally, this was the first thing that came to my mind after I found out the page died. To whom would I go? <laughs> of course you offend me. Of course you don't do what I thought you were going to do. You're God and I'm not. Of course you're not fulfilling my desires. I'm not the God of the universe. The universe doesn't revolve around me. I don't know your plans. I don't know your will. I don't know your, your grand scheme. I don't know any of this stuff. I am, I am part of bringing you glory. I am The chief end of my life is to glorify you and enjoy you forever. And I sit in the middle of my mess between the here and the not yet. I'm still alive. I'm not dead and in heaven with you. And it's confusing. And this world is marked by pain and sin and frustration. Do I offend you? Of course you offend me. My wife's gone. Of course you offend me. Are you kidding me? I thought, every, I thought bringing you in my life would make everything simple and it's got nothing but more complicated. Of course you offend me. 
Jesus then asks, then are you gonna abandon me too? And I believe that the heart of the Christian is to respond simply by saying, of course you offend me, but to whom would I go? You alone hold the keys to eternal life. The call of the Christian is not a negotiation with the king. The call of the Christian is to look at the divine love that the God of the universe stepped down into our muck and our madness. And in Philippians chapter two, he was God himself and yet he stepped down, did not consider equality with God someone to be grasped but instead made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being found in human likeness, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Why? Because he loved you and me so desperately that John three sixteen, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Because of that grace and because of that love and because of that sovereignty and because of his goodness and because this life is, t- Jack, James chapter three, a vapor in the wet wind, here today and gone tomorrow, because it's so insignificant and because, as Paul says, for me to live is Christ and die is gain. Because, as Paul says, when I consider all my present sufferings, they're nothing worth comparing with the surpassing glory that is found in Christ Jesus. Because of all these things, you can offend me, you can take my life, you can use me as a vessel of brokenness, you can rob me of everything that I have. You can make me poor and miserable and destitute, but your goodness is not dependent on my circumstances, and my commitment to you isn't based on a contract that I've preconceived in my mind. So the Christian does this. They sign their name at the bottom of a contract and then they push it across the table and they say, fill it in. Surrender with God is not to negotiate your contract and then sign when things are good for you. It's to sign your name at the bottom of a blank piece of paper and simply say, you are the potter and I am the clay. You are the artist and I am your canvas. And whether my life looks like the glory of the power of your success and victory, or if my life is the valley of the shadow of death, may you be glorified through it. Does this offend you? Of course it does. Are you going to abandon me? No. Why? To whom would I go? You alone hold the keys to eternal life. I want you to become aware of the internal contract that you have with God that you might not even know is there. And my question to you is this. Think of in in your life what's most important to you. Think of of an identity that you have. Think of a success that you have. Think of a future hope that you have. Think of a friend that you have. Think of a relationship. Think of a parent. Think of something in your life that is of the utmost importance to you. It is more important than anything else in your life. And so I ask you this question. If tomorrow God took that away from you, would he still be enough for you? What if tomorrow God took away the very thing that was most important to you? It's easy to call God good when everything is good. It's a whole different thing to call God good when he breaks contract or what we think is his contract. But if you want to finish this race with Jesus... The call to submission from Romans chapter 12 is to write your name and sign it at the bottom of a piece of paper and say, Jesus, take my life. Break it, smash it, move it, change it, shape it, reform it, conform it, use it. I am your child. And whatever you want with my life, I am clay in the potter's hands. Take it and make what you will. Jesus came to break every expectation of the ruling class, of the Samaritan, of the Jew, of the cultural Jew, of the Gentile. He came to break them all. And I believe in our hearts he's come to do the same thing. The question is, when he does, will he still be your God? Let's pray. Jesus, as we dive into the truth of your life and ministry, we don't see this uber clear, extremely docile man that walks around like a genie asking, what can I get for you? What can I get for you? What can I get for you? And then like some kind of cosmic slot machine, you're not just throwing out what we want. It says in the scriptures that you look through our desires. The book of Romans says that we groan in utterances, but your Holy Spirit knows what we desperately need. But God, a lot of us sitting here, we have an internal contract that we've made with you that says, God, you're only good, you're only to be worshiped, and you're only my God, if and only if you give me, you make me, you change me, you provide for me, you protect me from. 
But God, if that's our condition, if that's our stipulation of following you, then may your Holy Spirit speak to our heart right now that we have not fully surrendered to you. Thank you so much for the great, gracious gift of tearing down our idols in our life, of breaking expectations in our life. Because oftentimes, the only time we see your face truly is when we stop seeing it through the lens of what we expect from you, and we see you in your full glory. Would you give us the bravery to ask this question? God, if you took away what was most important to me, would you still be my God? Jimmy, pray.